Welcome back, everybody. I am, of course, Lynn Gilliland, your host, and I am, and this is, as you know, sponsored by Humentum, and we are, this is the Lessons from Leaders podcast, and see, I'm so excited about Uma that I forgot to give the introduction that I normally give. So Uma is here with us from The New Pluralist, and she and I met for the first time yesterday. We had a getting to know you conversation and I was just saying to her and then I stopped because I wanted to say it here on the podcast um, I'm so excited by Uma the work that you're doing and your perspective that you bring and it's some things that I've been thinking about and wondering about and to hear that you're already working on them and you had ideas that I had not thought about so I want to welcome you I'm so glad that you're here I'm so glad that we're gonna sh get your voice out there to share uh, what your your how you see things and what you're working on so welcome thank you thank you so much i'm really looking forward to this conversation with you and just to start with like i'm just chomping at the bit is um you were telling me yesterday how the process of leadership can heal you and and i'm looking at my notes and that process can unlock your ability to see challenges differently and to me that was like it blew my mind and so Talk about how, that, how you see that, what you think about that. And then I believe some of your own work that you've done in your own story helps you help you get to this perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this this perspective that, you know, I think a lot of times, so my, my background, my orientation is I grew up in the United States, but um, my family emigrated from India like about 50 years ago. So my whole life, I've actually had a relationship like, kind of cross it's not just cross culturally it's actually just like different worldviews like different perspectives on how we make meaning of the life around us the, our environment the choices that we make um so i feel like i've been gifted with the ability to actually be able to see across mm. in between and sort of choose and so for me the um like i've always had this curiosity of how do we make sense of the world around us why is it that some people seemingly have everything and yet they feel so stuck in their lives and why is it that some people seem to not have very much and yet they're able to make this change happen around them they're able to actually have such a huge impact on things so actually at some point in my life somebody told me that what i cared about was leadership development but i don't think those would have been the words that i exactly put to it mm -hmm. um so i actually my um undergraduate all of that i kind of knew that my career i wanted it to be about people um, and the closest i could find to that was the study of psychology um so i actually in my undergraduate studied psychology clinical psychology um but it, it to me it felt like this way of seeing the challenges that we face in our lives as like a problem to be fixed as opposed to this idea that that is just simply what it means to be like living as people mm. is that we're constantly grappling with challenges with circumstances that can we can either let them swallow us whole or we can find ways to kind of navigate through them so for some that has to do with family dynamics for some that has to do with challenges that maybe our communities are facing for some those those the way that we understand the world's problems climate change whatever it is that's the thing that we're we're really kind of grappling with and so when our own capacity to be able to take care of ourselves feels really limited like we feel so frayed and fractured 
that's, I think, when we have that experience of overwhelm or when we have that feeling feeling of like, well, there's nothing that I can do about it. I feel really cynical. I feel really hopeless or the problem is bigger than I am. And so the process of healing that I have both um, been able to kind of witness and be part of for lots of different kinds of communities through some work that I did throughout the like much of my 20s um, is to be able to help people have the tools to to find that balance and to find that wholeness within themselves to be able to heal, which changes your eyes to kind of the world around you. And you start to see that where before it was this sort of overwhelming problem, it's like becomes a bit of an adventure. Like, what can I do about it? I wonder if, I wonder what. And so that sense of like, when we feel whole, we feel more connected to the world around us and then we're capable of taking responsibility. And that's where agency comes from. You know, I think a lot of times when we think of healing trauma, especially when we look at from whether you're looking at racial trauma, whether you're looking at, you know, family domestic trauma, we can often like turn people into victims of something where they're smaller than the problem. But when we're actually capable of like taking responsibility, we start to see that like I can actually affect the world around me, like our sense of agency grows. And that is actually really important for the process of healing. And so that relationship between it's not like we have to be fully healed and whole before we can lead. And the process of leading often causes like pinches and hurts and bruises along the way, because that's what happens when you grow, when you change, when you're challenged by the world around you, it isn't always going to feel good. But the more that we have the capacity to digest and process and still stay with it, it's like the process of healing and leadership can have such a powerful relationship with each other. Um, so I've gotten to do this kind of work. So for a number of years, I actually worked in Haiti, um, where I was working with um, young leaders there. So these are leaders that, you know, the, the maximum level of education that you might imagine would be the equivalent of like a middle school education here. There is such a deep lack of opportunity, job opportunity. You look at what's going on with the, the kind of the natural environment. It's a, it's a pretty kind of devastated country. And a lot of um, what would happen there, so these I was working with young leaders there who were somewhere between the ages of 18 and, and 25. Um, and a lot of what I found was such a sense of, um, like, there's nothing we can do about this. You know, we need to wait for the NGOs to come in. We need to wait for the government to come in. Someone else is going to come here and they need to fix this for us. And how that kind of just brings you to this place of, of, where you are smaller than the problems around you, but also where you feel kind of stuck and overwhelmed. So a lot of the work that I was doing there was around how do you actually provide people with restorative practice, breath-based tools, with this ability to start to find that kind of internal energy and clear away some of the sense of the well there is real reason that people have trauma but actually breath and trauma can you can really heal a lot of it through that and you start to see that young people in particular have this ability to to start to then flip their script of wow if i if i feel overwhelmed by the you know the destruction of trees that's around me i wonder what i can do about that so a lot of the conversation is like whatever it is that you complain about whatever it is that feels like it's getting in the way of you being able to live your your life 
what can I do to take responsibility for that? And then starting to kind of build the skills and the capacities for them to be able to, to work on that. And so that was a lot of the kind of my own, um, it formed a lot of, I think, my own early thinking about how social change happens and how it's a really human process. Like I think a lot of times um, when we are thinking about these big issues, global issues or local issues, we we talk about them as if it doesn't involve like human beings with like, feelings and sentiments and relationships but when you actually are are creating change by working with those humans there's actually a lot more um there's a lot more possibility like it becomes a lot more dynamic and alive um and so for me that that relationship between healing and the process of leadership and the process of taking action they go together you know and i i listen right now and i look at you look at the level of like burnout that's going on right now mm-hmm. in nonprofits among in philanthropy i think it has to do with this idea that you're supposed to squeeze yourself to death and like kind of be a little bit of a martyr and that's the sign that you're truly mission focused or you're truly purpose oriented but if you're not taking care of your own if you think of yourself as like an instrument like even if your life is ultimately about purpose if you're not taking care of that instrument your work is not even going to be that good and so it's actually really important for us as leaders within these spaces to both model that and to kind of give permission that like yes like take the time that you need, take the meaningful time that you need to process whatever it is that you need to process so that you can do better work. Um, So I think there's a real opportunity to even like shift the norms and the ways that we think about how healing and social change are connected to each other. And I, there's so much in there that I appreciate and just some bits are um, that to, instead of, pushing down the discomfort, the uncomfortableness, the trauma. And a lot of us have trauma. We don't recognize it as trauma, own it as trauma. Um, and so embrace, and so it, with, through embracing it, we're able to become what I envision you saying is like these incredibly, to be much more effective. Um, and in part because we're not exhausted trying to shove it all the way to. Um, and, I, it just seems to me like, so I'm thinking of not so much the people in Haiti, but because that or in any place that people are waiting for the NGOs to come save them, which is a whole another thing that we have created through the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but just also workers in the U.S. or in Europe that are working, that are doing the work, um, thinking how do, that they need to take care of themselves, which is what you were talking about. And, able, and that's a worthy thing to do. That's a worthy thing to do. And what I worried about during the pandemic was people were, the things that they were trying to get people, and Joe's were urging people to do, because that's the resources that they had. I wasn't sure that was really, it was nice, but it wasn't really getting at the deep work that um that needs to happen. And so I could go on about my what I think about this, but but I think that the trick is, well, two things. One, taking care of doing our own work leads to health for the organization. So it isn't a it isn't a selfish act. 
Mm. Right. And then, um, and I wonder, do, or, you know, I've worked in organizations that have trauma. They had a toxic CEO, for instance, or they had to let go half the staff that creates trauma mm. and how, how to bring that to the, at an organizational level. Um, and, and you and I talked yesterday about how do we get leaders to do that restorative work themselves, like believe that that really matters, that it really really matters so mm. yeah yeah i mean i think some of it starts with modeling it i mean i think mm. even as somebody who has been a practitioner of and a teacher of yoga and meditation and breath work for now about 20 years like for me it's the equivalent of like brushing your teeth like you just mm. get out into the world if you haven't brush your teeth. Like I wouldn't go out into the world if I haven't practiced taking care of my own mind and my heart and like have that energy. It doesn't mean that I don't get like overwhelmed by stuff or bothered by stuff, but it's, it's like actually having the tools and taking the responsibility to take care of myself is what makes me a more effective leader, I think, and a more creative leader and a more like a humble leader. Like some, I, it makes me more sensitive to be able to read the subtle cues that are going on out in the world because it's, it's healing, but it's also a lot of self-awareness that you build um, when you have that ability to kind of go inward, you can start to see, okay, these are the things that, um, this is how I see the world. This is how, these are my strengths, which also means they're things that I'm not good at. And therefore, how do I build a team that is good at those things? And being able to see that we're, we have that ability to look at ourselves and examine our own minds and hearts and kind of take a pulse on that, then I think makes us more effective at building the kinds of teams where it's, we're not hiding things, where there's mm. no issue with hiding our own vulnerabilities. It's like, I have a vulnerability here. That could be an area of strength for someone on, on a team. So I can actually lean on that person and say, hey, I'm like actually not really good at this thing. Can I pull you into this so that either you hold it down or you actually coach and train me? And that is some speaking as someone who's an organizational leader right now, like I don't have an issue doing that because of the self-awareness that I've built over time, that it's it's my responsibility to do that. And it's also my responsibility to create an enabling environment where other people that I'm guiding, that I'm leading on a team or at, so that with New Pluralist, we're, we're a collaborative. So it's actually a pretty complicated structure where it's, we have a core team, but we have deep relationships with a set of a very diverse set of funders that we work with, each of whom have their own personalities, their own strengths, their, the things that they care about. And we also partner deeply with different types of field leaders who also have their own disciplines, their own ways of doing things. And so, so much of this practice of being able to have awareness allows me and allows our organization to kind of tap people for their brilliance and not just get stuck in our own like idea of like, it has to look exactly this way. It like allows you to be a lot more emergent and dynamic to be able to take on the challenges that you face. Um, and so with New Pluralist, the, the the challenge that we're taking on is the, well, the, the opportunity that we're taking on really is like, what, how do we build a culture that embraces pluralism? Um, so pluralism being, we've sort of distilled it to these five 
kind of key principles. So one of which is is honoring human dignity. You know, I think we're really looking mm-hmm. at what's going on right now in our country and the ways in which we're we're frankly dehumanizing each other across so many different lines of difference. I think we see that a lot across political divides, but we also see it across class divides, across racial divides. There's this thing where we're missing the fact that each of us actually has inherent dignity that we don't need to earn. It's like we're born with that thing. And how can we actually start to treat each other with that? The second is recognizing that that we we cause each other harm. We've historically and we're currently causing each other harm. How do we actually take responsibility to repair from that harm? It's actually really hard to admit that. Like I think that's where we, we start to see a, a sort of defensiveness that can sometimes come up when we feel like we've hurt someone, we either get defensive or we can get aggressive about it too. But in order to be able to kind of move forward together as a society, we actually need to have that ability to repair from harm. So this is actually on a more collective level, I think is connected to healing and those ideas of healing. Um, the third principle is to expand our circle of belonging, our circle of care and concern. It's really easy to care about people that already agree with us that already believe the same things that we believe. It's a lot harder to care about and feel that people belong to you that are actually pretty vastly different from you. But it's also a really important dimension of what it means to live in a multicultural, multi-faith democracy. And so this ability to help people see the value of doing that is so critical. I think we see that even playing out within within philanthropy right now, within nonprofits. It's There's a lot of kind of groupthink that we can get really caught in, and it's going to make it really difficult for us to grapple with climate change, to grapple with racial injustice. It's going to be really difficult unless we're willing to expand who belongs to this work. Um, the fourth principle of pluralism is to be able to find strength in difference, that mm. it's not like a design flaw. It's actually a, a, a design feature of what it actually means to do, to, to exist as a, as, a, as a pluralistic democracy, that it's not despite our differences. Like we are going to be able to grapple with huge challenges and we're going to be able to lean into the future that we want to be able to create because we have the level of diversity that we have in our in our country, in our organizations, in our communities. How can we start to believe that is, is the case and learn how to work together better across of our, our differences? Um, and then the fifth is to be able to have move from sort of a zero-sum mindset into the sense of abundance, a sense of greater sum. You know, so much of even when I think about the work of like advocacy, so much of the field of advocacy is built around this idea of kind of winners and, and losers, right? We got to win on this policy. And it's not to say that there aren't instances and moments where that's really, really important. And it's not to say that we are sort of in this wishy-washy kind of like morally ambiguous space where, you know, anything goes, but to be able to see like, maybe there are different ways, maybe there's a third way, maybe there's multiple pathways to get to a place. And that when we can, as as people, as leaders, as communities can expand our thinking to, to recognize that there perhaps can be an ab- abundance of possibility that it it causes us to start to move differently. We don't just have to win this argument. We can open up a different kind of conversation too. And so these are like sort of five principles that we're actually looking as a as a collaborative of funders and field leaders to advance throughout our culture. And so, which is, you know, a little daunting when you think about like culture, like that's huge. Right. How do you affect culture? 
And so we're we're kind of we're very early on as an organization, and it takes um, it takes some some risk taking. It takes an ability to try and learn and fail at some things and then pick it up and try again. And so I think a lot, that's a lot of, I think, how we've sort of set the tone and the culture for an organization like this is that we're highly collaborative. We can't figure it out unless we do it together across our differences. We have to live into these values and we have to be willing to do something that can be a little uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people in the sort of philanthropic and nonprofit space is to try things that we don't know the answer to Mm. and then to come back and say, reflect what worked and what didn't and to be willing to drop the things that didn't work. I think a lot of times we, we, we have such such a vested interest in proving the ideas or the approaches or the methodologies because we want to, we want a level of certainty that we can't always have, but the challenges that our culture is facing of polarization and division right now, um, I don't know who has the answer. I don't think there is an answer. And so we actually have to be willing to learn and emerge and try and test out different hypotheses together. Um, and so that's a lot of what um, like I'm spending my time doing right now. And I don't know that I would be able to do this work if I didn't have my own kind of internal practice to be able to guide me. I love, thank you for going over those five things this and some of them I think would be I'd love to see organizations take on like their strengths and differences like that, especially as they're moving through this very difficult time where and it's going to continue trying to um, keep on top of climate change and political change and financial change. I especially um, you know, the trying and failing, we have to do things that we don't know how they're going to be. I love that. And I'm imagining you, 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 you have your own practice, you said, that, that's a lot that there's so many things of failing, putting ourselves forward and knowing we may fail, we're probably going to fail. And it's public, you're not failing, you're not tripping over the rug in your living room and nobody's watching you. Um, Which I do regularly. <laughs> Grace is not one of my things. I've, I've gotten used to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you trip and you go, no, nobody saw that. <laughs> um, that takes a, that requires a lot of energy from oneself, a lot of taking care of oneself. Um, is there anything more you can say about how you do that? personally i don't know if it's around your practices or your beliefs that you that help you but i think that would be good to if you're willing to lay out a little bit so um because it's you're doing a high wire act with all of us going okay that was a stupid move (laughs) or that was a smart move yeah so. (laughs) so i think um so one thing that really guides me is a, a sense that I'm just a small part of a big universe mm-hmm. and that whatever it is that I'm taking on, it's like just having a really expanded context about it where um, it, I don't say it like takes, it's not that I feel like a, like a, I'm small, but more so the purpose is so much bigger than mm-hmm. I am that um, whatever it is that I'm doing is just in the service of something that's much bigger than me. And so it, it a little bit takes that, that pressure off to some degree. Um, and to see that I'm just like, I'm just an instrument, I'm just a vessel for something bigger to happen. 
where um, it doesn't always have to happen according to the plan that I set out or that I put out into the world. It's almost like it has its own plan. And the Mm -hmm. more sensitive I am, the more I can read the cues that are going on around me. Okay, turn left here. Okay, drop that. Okay, now turn right there. So there's a way that it's like you test and learn and you have like hypotheses, but you don't have to necessarily um, always get it right. And as long as you take it as learning and data as opposed to failure, right? So even the word failure has to do with this idea that it was supposed to go according to the plan. Mm -hmm. But if you take it as, oh, I'm getting these signals back that like this hypothesis, maybe like I need to shift gears and like go into a different hypothesis about this thing, or maybe my assumptions got in the way here. Maybe I just need to look at it with a different set of eyes or someone else needs to look at it with a different set of eyes. So it's almost like being able to see it as like learning opportunities and that all of these these fields, these opportunities that we're building out are just spaces for us to co-create as opposed to like a, I guess it's like the world, I don't see the world as like an incredibly dangerous place, which I think a lot of us are conditioned to see. I mean, some of that I think has to do with being raised by loving parents, you know, in a safe mm-hmm. environment. Like that did a lot for me to really help me not be afraid of the world. Um, I think another um, another thing that kind of guides me. So one of the things that um, an example of doing something maybe a bit bolder and riskier is. So we um, we just kind of announced in a in a we were invited to kind of like with the white house to be able to announce a an intention to galvanize a billion dollars from the field of philanthropy over the course of the next 10 years to support this work of of pluralism um so that doesn't have to be towards us it can be towards any of these incredible field organizations leaders that we're working with and it's been so interesting to sort of see the response back to that where there's a lot of people some people are critical you know this idea of how would you possibly do that we we're taking an emergent approach we're we're figuring it out as we go along we're collaborating with a lot of very different kinds of people because there is no way that us as one small organization could actually meet that goal we sort of set a moonshot that's actually a lot bigger like than anything that we could do and kind of did that on purpose because it causes you to think a little bit differently about the challenge. It causes you to have to, you have to be transformational in your thinking and your action to actually meet a goal like that. A lot of times we set goals that are almost too realistic so that you can continue just doing the same old, same old. But when you set something that's an unrealistic goal, it causes a shift and it makes people uncomfortable. Um, And that's, it's been a really interesting thing. And there's some people who are saying, we want to support you, but we want to do it behind the scenes. We don't want to say we want to commit to that thing because it's scary. And it's it's a fascinating thing because it's like, what do we have to lose by just saying we, we're setting this goal for ourselves and we'll get there together? But it is a really interesting phenomenon to see how how afraid people are to kind of take a leap of faith and like step into uncertainty, but how time and again throughout our history – those are the things that have like moved us. Like that's what, you know, JFK did. Like that's the phrase, the moonshot, right? Like we got a moon and like all of the things that got built as a result of setting these nearly impossible visions that require everyone come together and like figure out a way forward. Um, And so for me, I think what gives me comfort in that is a sense that one, I know I'm not doing it on my own, and as long as I'm in right relationship with people who are backing and supporting those those kinds of bolder actions, it gives me that 
faith. Cause like, I think, and, and it has to do with that humility. Like I know that I, as a leader would not be able to do it. My beautiful, but small scrappy team would not be able to do this thing on our own, but we know that we can build relationships with people who can start to kind of guide and lead that forward. And so I think those things kind of give me that comfort to do things that maybe feel a little bit scary is seeing that I'm part of something much, much bigger than myself and that I'm not doing this alone, that I have other people. And I love also the kind of, for me, you've reframed things as to, um it's scary or there's failure and of course i've heard you know the reframing of failure but instead it's like a hypothesis let's go test it let's do really big because that will shake things up um and so there's it's a reframing that makes it feel exciting and um hopeful not even hopeful like we'll just it's we'll we'll figure something out that will work we just don't know what yet yeah. And um, I find that to be quite, it feels like a big shift for me. Um, and it's, and how I cannot envision having any other framework with the work that you're doing. You, It seems like you have to have a framework, a vision, a belief that's going to make it like, we'll get there. We're not sure how we're going to get there, but we're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is I've observed that taking a hopeful and optimistic stance terrifies some people and it makes them think you're naive or you don't know, but you don't understand how urgent it is. And when we're in that space of, of urgency or fear and overwhelm, it makes us less creative. I mean, we get yeah. into that like primal brain right. space where we're like, you can only do the rope things that you already know how to do. But when you're actually in a space of like of calm and mm. possibility and hope, you actually see a lot more possibilities that way too. Um, but it's so, we're so, we're so like trained, I think in particular within like nonprofits and philanthropies to be like, here's the big scary problem. We have to start with the big, scary problem. If you don't state it as a big, scary problem, it means you're somehow not being realistic about it. And you kind of, you like get into this like fear space or anger space, right? Like who's, who's to blame for that problem? We got to name all of that. And then we'll talk about some solutions and something practical, but we've already like freaked ourselves out. So the solutions sometimes are actually not as creative as they could be. And sometimes it's just a flip. Like, what do we want to see out in the world? Like, what's the future? What's the possibility? What's the dream? What's getting in the way of the dream? It's not to say that you're not um, practical about the barriers to that dream, but you've gotten all your energy into the, the future you want. And then you can figure out how to tackle the challenges. So this is like the core of asset framing. I don't know if you're familiar with um, mm -hmm. Porter's work. He's really like pushing on this idea. We need to flip, flip it because otherwise we're like based on neuroscience. Like otherwise we're in this like space right. tunnel vision where we can't get as creative as we can be. And so even when we're thinking about what's happening in our, in our world right now with, with, all of these challenges that we're facing, it starts to become this space of such overwhelm that people want to disengage or they become numb or they just they just want to play it safe or just keep it really simple. And what we need is more people feeling activated with a sense of agency to actually do something about this. So it's actually like 
being hopeful is actually really practical too. Like if you want to engage people, you have to actually give people a sense that like, we can get there, let's get there. All right, now let's like remove the stuff that's standing in the way of us getting there. And I just wanted to underline the neuroscience behind it. So when we are afraid, which you alluded to, our prefrontal cortex goes offline. Yep. And that's the creative part, the innovative part, the hopeful part. And so what what I'm putting a pin in is we need to keep ourselves and everyone else so that the prefrontal cortex is online. Otherwise we're you know, we're not going to be coming up with the best solutions. We're just going to be doing the same old things over and over again. Yep. So Yep. And it's also the same, you know, the the old parts of the brain the fight or flight, that's what makes you behave more tribally. That's what makes you other people. Those are like really old parts of us that it's like danger, danger. I got to like stick with what I know and be ready to fight. And if the issue that we want to grapple with requires that we are curious about each other and curious across our differences, we can't be doing that from a place of fear. We have to be doing that from a place of, I wonder you know, I wonder what we share in common. I wonder if there's actually a different kind of future that we could create for ourselves. Oh, Uma, I have so, you know, I have so loved this. There's so many things in all of this that I would want to pull out for, from you that I want to, either they're, they're new for me or I want to get a broader, um, I want to get a broader audience. So, Thank you so much for your time, for the, for, yeah, for your time, for bringing whatever got you here with all your history. Thank you for that because um, I'm finding it enlightening. And uh, I, to me, I don't know what is it. It's not like a siren call because that's like the woman killing the men. I don't know what it is, but it's like a, so what's the metaphor? Like uh, it's the foghorn. People, it's the foghorn. She's it's the foghorn, so we don't hit the shoals. That's Uma right now. You're our foghorn. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Yes, it was wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And uh, I don't know if we'll top this podcast, but you will. We'll see you at the next one. Bye.